Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the Gentileschi's daughter and father. I'll talk first with J. Paul Getty Museum curator Davide Gasparato. He recently acquired Artemisia Gentileschi's Lucretia from about 1627 for the Getty Museum. The picture was recently rediscovered by the field and was acquired earlier this spring. It went on view for the first time when the Getty reopened after its pandemic-related closure. Gentileschi's Lucretia shows the wife of a Roman nobleman. After Lucretia was raped by a son of the king, she stabbed herself to death. Her suicide led to a rebellion that drove the ruling family from Rome and led to the foundation of the Roman Republic. The event was a favorite subject of Renaissance and Baroque art. On the second segment, I'll talk to Marcia Steele about her conservation of a major Orazio Gentileschi at the Cleveland Museum of Art. But first, Davide Gasparato, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side by side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash Hockney Van Gogh. If you've been waiting patiently to get back to the Getty Center or experience it for the first time, great news. The center has reopened. Savor stunning architecture, sweeping views of Los Angeles, and the lush Central Garden. Check out four new exhibitions, including Photo Flux on Shuttering LA, Artists as Collectors, and Power, Justice, and Tyranny in the Middle Ages. Make free advance reservations at getty.edu. We can't wait to see you. And we're back. Davide Gasparotto, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Do we know how many Lucretias Artemisia Gentileschi painted? And then when in her career did she make your new painting? Uh, she painted the subject several times in her career. Before, there were two sort of new discoveries recently. One is our painting, the painting that we just acquired, that was discovered a couple of years ago in a private collection in France that was auctioned and with a lot of you know success. And the other one is another Lucretia that was also discovered in a private collection and auction in Vienna, also a couple of years ago. It's a little painting a little bit later than our painting. But before, we knew about two other paintings. One is in a private collection in uh, today in Milan, and it's uh, uh, the earliest. And then there is a late version, which is a little bit different because it's not the isolated figure of Lucretia, but represented, but it's really the scene when uh, Tarquin uh, sort of uh, attacks Lucretia. Yeah. So it's a, it's a scene which is in some way, I would say not more conventional, but more looking back to the 16th century, especially to Titian, while our painting, like the other two paintings, they present Lucretia sort of alone, isolated at the peak of the story's action. Yours was, we believe, painted when Artemisia was living in Venice. Where does that 
fit within her career arc and what was she interested in when she was in Venice, pictorially, I guess, and otherwise? So the, the stay of Artemisia in Venice was until a few years ago, very mysterious. We knew that she was there from about 1626, uh, early 1627 to 1630, but there were basically no works associated with this period. In terms of her career, we are sort of in the middle. We know that, you know, she was born in Rome in 1593. Her first dated and signed painting dates from 1611, so when she was 18 years old. We know that after the infamous uh, rape and the episode of the trial, she moved to Florence, where she stayed for several years, for about nine years. And then she moved back to Rome in the early 1620s. And then we have this Venetian period in the second half of the 1620s. And then later on, the last basically 25 years of her career, she was most she was mostly living in Naples, apart from a brief uh, travel trip to London. So it's a mid-career, and it's still a kind of a mysterious moment of her career, because uh, only recently an American scholar, Jesse Locker, who wrote a beautiful book uh, on yeah. Artemisia called Artemisia Gentileschi, The Language of Painting, argued that uh, the large painting of Esther and Asuerus at the Metropolitan Museum of Art should date from the Venetian period. And it's indeed a painting which reflects uh, uh, Artemisia's experiences with Venetian art. You know, the great, the fact that she was looking back to the great 16th century Venetian tradition of Veronese and Titian, but also contacts with uh, a group of painters uh, foreign painters especially, who were active in Venice during the 1620s. And I'm thinking to painters like the Genoese Bernardo Strozzi or the French Nicolas Regnier or the German Johann Liszt. They were all there in Venice and they were sort of a little bit reinventing the Venetian tradition which was strongly, you know, tied with the, the great moment of Venetian painting of the previous century. So we believe that the painting that we acquired, Lucretia, according to, especially to the proposal that the same scholar Jesse Locker made, should date from this period, not only because uh, there are uh, some poems that were written in Venice in 1627, and in these poems, it is celebrated a painting depicting Lucretia by Artemisia, but also because of the style of the picture. In some way, the style is very close to the Metropolitan painting, to that of the Metropolitan painting. And uh, it's a moment of change in Artemisia's trajectory. You mentioned Titian and Veronese. They both did Lucretia's that... Artemisia may have known. The Titian, at the time Artemisia made your picture, um, that Titian was about 100 plus, 110 years old. Is there any reason to believe or do you believe that Artemisia knew of Titian's treatment of Lucretia? You know, Titian painted several times the figure of Lucretia. Some of, her, of his paintings are 
as you say, they are from the earlier part of Titian's career, like the 1520s, but some of them are even later. And for example, one other Lucretia, which I think entertains some relationship with Artemisia's Lucretia, was painted in the 1580s, so in sort of in the later part of Veronese's career. And they were, some of them were in Venetian collections. So um, Artemisia could have known them, could have seen these paintings. The Veronese Lucretia dates to about 1585, it and the Titian version of the subject are are both at the Kunsthistorisches in uh, Vienna. Is there anything in either of those paintings that you notice or think is present in yours in an interesting way? You know, I think that the sort of this creaming pasto, the beautiful free brush strokes, especially present in the sleeve of our Lucretia, this idea of the transparent veil the elegance, the overall elegance of the figure, the pearls on the hair, the earring, the pearl earrings, they seem to be in some way related to a certain way of depicting Lucretia. Obviously, I believe that in the painting of Artemisia there is more because there is this sort of strong, very, very strong pathos, this drama which is, you know, it goes beyond the sort of the elegance, elegant sophistication of uh, especially Veronese's precedent. Uh, there is really a sense of the drama of what's happening. And the, the left hand, for example, which it's also kind of a little bit awkward, is so elongated with this finger. Like, I think it reflects really this uh, sort of the distress uh, of the of the figure of, of the moment of this dramatic moment. So there is a lot of drama of pathos, which I think uh, distinguishes uh, the painting uh, by Artemisia from uh, 16th century precedents. That left hand you mentioned is in the lower left foreground of the picture, which we'll have on manpodcast.com, of course. And and thus it is the you know, air quotes, the part of her that is closest to the viewer. And so that stress in the hand and the shadow in the hand brings us right up her arm to the sleeve of her dress, which is, you know, just all the most painterly drama. I mean, all of the painterly drama you expect to find in an Italian sleeve is there. And and so we x-rayed the painting and uh, there... There are some changes, there are some pentimenti, you know, we, in Italian we call the changes the pentimenti in the position of the blade. But overall, I would say the most important change is that at the beginning she envisioned a sort of a curtain and uh, an opening, like a sort of a window probably behind the figure. But then these will will take the picture closer in some way to sort of Venetian precedence. But then she decided to, you know, get rid of these, like more, I don't know, of these details and to just have a, exclusively have a focus on the figure, on the female figure, on the drama, on this figure in some way dramatically emerging from the shadows. So... It was a choice, and uh, I think it's, uh, 
it makes the picture even more compelling. One of the other elements of the picture that jumps out to me, a non-specialist, is her mournful plus devotional look heavenward. The 16th century Lucretias by, by Titian and his circle are rather more direct in terms of Lucretia looking at the viewer, even if her eyes might be heavenward. But in your new picture, her entire head and, and neck are tilted upward. And while I've only seen the painting in JPEG form, it sure looks to me like there's some moisture in her eye, that there's a lot of drama just right on, on the surface of her eye. Is, th is that something we should understand as Artemisia herself bringing to the picture as an idea? Or is that kind of hyper, you know, religiosity or a reference to, to heavenward, you know, maybe a, a particularly early 17th century reference? Yeah, it's, I think it's a complex question because obviously you are referring I think, I, I believe you are referring to the fact that there is often this idea that Artemisia is bringing herself into her pictures, and especially she's bringing her traumatic experience, the traumatic experience that she had when she was very young of being raped by one of the collaborators of her father in, uh, in the studio of her father, Orazio, who, as we know, was a painter too and was the the teacher of Artemisia. It's a complicated question because I think uh, there is for sure a lot of empathy uh, from the part of Artemisia when she paints these sort of distressed women. But I think there is also, we have to take into account the language of the moment. And so there is this desire to emphasize uh, the feelings and this way of showing the head tilted, looking heavenward, it's very much part of the, of the culture of the period to emphasize really the strong feelings. If you compare, I, I find the comparison with the figure of Esther in the painting at the Metropolitan extremely compelling. It seems to me that she may have used even the same model and uh, because I believe this is not a self-portrait of her, we know that she sometimes used her. Probably the painting, the previous painting of Lucretia, the one in the private collection in Milan, which is some way more raw, more hard-hedged, more Caravaggio still in the, in the spirit. Probably it was suggested by, by Keith Christiansen that she used the, her own body as a model. And it's something she did in her earlier picture. She used herself often. I think here she's probably using a model. And we know that Artemisia used models because in later, in some of her letters later on in her career, the famous letters to her patron in Naples, Antonio Ruffo, she writes that she was spending a lot of money she, for these models. And so I believe that here there is a model and maybe it's the same model of the painting at the Met. A couple things about the, the picture at the Met. We'll have it on the website too. The way Esther's head is not quite thrown back, but is reclining from the picture plane, if you will, in the Met picture is is very similar, including in shadowing and in the way the light is hitting the subject's face in 
the Mets picture and in your picture. But the other thing about the Mets picture that really jumps out at me, and which is really my favorite part about your picture, at least in JPEG form, the, the way the veil wraps around Lucretia's body and sits just above the, the thick fabric sleeve is kind of present in the Esther at the Met, too, where the thick, heavy sleeve of Esther, who is kind of falling down, is played against the veil of a, a woman who is, who is holding her up. There, there is the way those two very different ways of painting and ways of showing and way of light passing through or hitting cloth play off of each other. And she does it in both paintings. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree with you. And I find that these comparisons, which were put forward by Jesse Locker, are very, to me, they are extremely convincing. So I completely agree that they, and and this is something you don't find a lot before this sort of painterly sophistication, this softness, this uh, is something that is really sort of picking up in this moment of Artemisia's career. You, we know that you know already Roberto Longhi, the great Italian art historian, in 1916 said that the Gentileschi family. Orazio and Artemisia, they were on the greatest artists in representing fabrics, sort of the shimmer of fabrics, the, the consistency, the differences between, I don't know, velvet and silk satin. The, the, both they are great in rendering uh, fabrics. But I think here there is something that is uh, new in her way of depicting uh, fabrics. Locker's book is really terrific. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. Davide Gasparotto, thanks very much. Thank you very much. At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in LA 2020 Aversion in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammers Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer in the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. In the book Evicted, Matthew Desmond argues that eviction and homelessness are not only results of poverty, but may also cause it. To contribute to better understanding the close relationship between residential instability and poverty, the exhibition Barriers and Disparities, Housing in America at Sheldon Museum of Art explores selected moments in the history of inequitable access to housing in the United States. Works by Ansel Adams, John Biggers, Gertrude Casabir, Gordon Parks, Louis B. Sloan, and Paul Strand are featured for their potency in helping us to consider how housing can pose larger questions about systemic injustices in our society. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org.
Welcome back. Next up, Marcia Steele, who led the conservation of Orazio Gentileschi's 1621-22 Danai at the Cleveland Museum of Art. The conserved picture debuted in Variations, the Reuse of Models and Paintings by Orazio and Artemisia Gentileschi, which is on view in Cleveland through August 22nd. Steele just retired as senior conservator at the museum. Marcia Steele, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Great to be here. How was the Gentileschi selected for conservation? Well, that's an interesting story. As you know, we are constantly working on works of art all throughout the museum, not only paintings, but objects and Asian paintings, et cetera, textiles, paper. So this painting actually had been on loan back in 2016, and it had come back from loan, and it was in the lab, in the painting conservation lab, and the director and curator, Corey Karkow, came, and William Griswold, who's the director of the museum, and we were admiring it as a great painting, but looking more closely, thinking, and this had actually been on the list for a long time for conservation, but we were looking at it together and saying, this seems to be the time now. It's off you before it had been hanging over a stairwell in the Reed Gallery. So when it went off you and went out on loan, we did the normal outgoing loan exam and again saying to ourselves, this is really could look so much better. It hadn't been restored since 1971, right before we acquired the painting. So when it came back, Corey and Bill and my colleagues and I were looking at it and saying, okay, this is it. This is the time. And we knew it was going to be a lengthy project just because of the size of the painting and also look at it with different types of lighting, with x-rays, ultraviolet light. We could see the vast amount of retouching that had been done by Herbert Lank in the 70s. So we knew it was going to be lengthy, and it was a good time to do it, and then we could actually highlight it as it re-entered the galleries. So back then, what did you think or see that it needed? Well, it was very clear that the retouches that Lank had put on had discolored. He used tempera paint, and also the varnish that he used, even though it was a synthetic varnish, had yellowed quite a bit. So even with without doing a cleaning test, it was clear that it would drastically change in hue and the relationships between the light and the shadows, which are so important in Genileski paintings, that that would actually reemerge through the treatment and cleaning and removal of all the obscuring retouches. In particular, the brown background in the left, which doesn't really have much going on in it anyway, had a lot of abrasion underneath. And what Lank had done is just completely overpaint it with one muddy brown color. So any subtlety in the lighting back there was completely obscured. So taking that off in and of itself just made the definition between the curtain and the background emerge much more clearly. Were there parts of the painting that, in considering what you wanted to do with it, that you thought would change or pop? Definitely the flesh tones and the white sheet, I knew, because having restored hundreds of paintings at this point, especially old master paintings, when those when the discolored varnish and retouches are cleared away with some kind of organic solvents, it's just very, very clear what the original relationships the artist intended, what they would be. So I think looking particularly at the figure and the white bed sheet, I knew there would be a great amount of retouching to do throughout the painting, particularly in the area of the hair, but we can get to that later if you want. Uh, no, we will definitely be getting to the hair. The hair is kind of a wild part of the story. 
you mentioned the sheet, you know, we'll have a whole range of images of the painting before and after and more on manpodcast.com. But the entire foreground and then up through the top middle of the painting is a kind of a series of progressions of flesh tones, golds and whites, and how they play off of each other and the light that comes into <laughs> not quite sure how how within the context of the myth <laughs> light was arriving in the scene but it's certainly here in the painting <laughs> right it was through a some kind of opening and the tomb or whatever so yeah it's it's but but you know Arancio being Arancio it's lit like a a stage set so i've read a little bit about what you did to the painting. And so there's a write-up for the museum you did that's on the museum's website that we'll have a link to. And then, of course, there's a presentation in in the Focus Gallery just off the museum's atrium. And one of the stories that the gallery tells is that you constructed silicon molds for, I don't, I'm, I'm sure I'm using the wrong term here, but for use on the painting. Why did you make silicon molds and what did you do with them once you made them? They were constructed with, well, with silicon, and they were made to mimic the texture of the surface of the painting. In many areas, there were large, large paint losses. And if you can imagine painting your wall, for example, and you have a big hole in it, (laughs) this, this is very simplistic. But if you don't fill that to match the surrounding texture, then you're always going to see that part of the wall look different from the rest. So in in an old painting like this, you've got cracks, you've got a texture from the canvas underneath. So in order to mimic the surrounding texture, I made some silicon molds, which are poured onto the surface of the painting near the loss. First, the paint layer is isolated with a size layer, so you're not really putting anything directly onto the surface. And let that set, and then once that's imprinted, the texture of the original paint layers imprinted onto the silicone mold, that's removed. And then I made a fill material, which is malleable and sensitive to a little bit of heat. So I filled the old losses, large areas with that material. And that in turn, the silicone mold was heated on a hot plate just slightly, slightly enough that when I put it onto the fill material, it could imprint that fill material with the texture of the nearby area. So in that way, the the whole paint texture is fluid and smooth throughout the whole painting rather than having large, flat, smooth areas that are filled with some kind of film material. So that was vital because even in the past treatment, they tried to get some kind of a texture in those, but they sort of carved into the film material with sort of a fabric texture, which didn't even match the fabric texture of the original fabric because the original fabric is actually a twill weave, which is, if you think of your jeans, as a, a diagonal kind of a weave. And they had imprinted or carved into this with just a plain weave, which is just sort of a perpendicular weave pattern. So in order to actually recreate the texture to match the original, I had to take a mold of the original and then imprint it onto this film material. How big were the molds? Maybe four by four inches. I had to make several of them because different areas of the painting had slightly different textures. So I made a few for the areas around the head. There was an area in the left background and then an area in the body. So speaking of different textures, what did x-rays reveal about how Orazio Gentileschi built the canvas, the construct for the painting? 
Well, for this particular painting, it's interesting because it's two pieces of fabric which have a, have been seamed together vertically down the center. So that was sort of a clue to me that he was not using a single piece, which is, there's another version at the Getty of this same subject of Denai, and that is actually one smooth piece of plain weave fabric. But as I started to study his artwork and his materials, it became evident that in many cases he would patchwork all kinds of different fabrics together to make one painting, even a painting as small as the Detroit picture, which is also in the exhibition, the woman playing the violin. That's made of four different pieces of herringbone weave fabric. And one of them is maybe about two by two inches. It's just like sewn into the corner. So it's it's interesting to know that he just patchworked these different pieces of fabric together to make the entire dimensions of the composition that he wanted to create. At, at the risk of asking a question I know you can't answer or couldn't possibly know the answer to, why? Why? Why did he do that? Well, I think because he probably had a certain size of, I'm guessing here, of a cartoon or a figure that he wanted to use. So if he was replicating or using a drawing from one canvas or a model to another, and as we see in the show, he reused a lot of these models, that if he wanted to maybe add another figure on the right, then he had to add another piece of fabric on the right so that he could then include yet another figure or a violin or something else. So it suggests his process may have been more spontaneous than we think of 17th century Roman processes being. Uh, Not so spontaneous. I think he probably had an idea pretty solidly in his head about what he wanted to do. But then when he looked at the scraps of canvas that he had around his studio, he said, oh, I've got this much herringbone and I've got this much over here and I, I just have to make this piece big enough. And oftentimes we know from uh, weave counts that he w- they were from the same bolt of fabric or a different bolt of fabric, but the, some were pre-grounded and some had a different ground. So it's it was kind of a more of a spontaneous thing, I think, than you'd think. We have mentioned the female figure's hair a couple times. As I understand it from having read about the picture, the the female figure's hair had to be had to, had to be kind of rebuilt. What kind of shape was 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 it in, and how did you address it? Well, that was one of the areas that had probably some of the most sizable losses of the whole painting, and very concentrated in that area. Perhaps the painting got wet at one point. I'm not really sure why in that particular area. It wasn't any kind of mechanical damage, like uh, anybody trying to do anything. But So once the painting was cleaned, it was clear that these large losses had been filled in several different campaigns, some from the 1970s treatment that I had mentioned, and some had fills that were even older, different colors. Some were red, some were brown, some were white. So once they were all uncovered, Again, we go back to texturing the fills and making sure they're all matching. Not only are the textures matching the original, but I also used a color that matched the ground layer of Orazio's original painting. So instead of trying to in-paint over a loss that's now filled with white or red, I actually used the brown color that he had created for his 
upper ground layer. In our painting, we have the, f the fabric, a glue size. There's red ground on top of that, and then there's a brown layer on top of that. So that brown layer is underneath all the paint, and in a lot of the shadows, there's just a thin glaze over that. So he actually used the underlying ground layer as a base for certain shadows in certain areas. So once all those losses were uniformly filled, textured, and colored, then I could go ahead and try to recreate the hair of Denai that was largely missing. Now, fortunately, there is the other version of, of Denai at the Getty, which I had mentioned, and the hair in that particular painting is in fairly good condition. I was fortunate enough to go out there a few times to look at the painting, take a lot of photographs, mentally and otherwise, and then come back to Cleveland and try to recreate that hair. And his hair is very complicated because it's got a lot of highlights and shadows and, and curls and certain areas. So having that to work off of was very helpful. However, I still had to go by tiny little islands of original paint that I had to work around when I filled the, the losses. So there could be like a, maybe two inches between one tiny little millimeter island and another tiny little millimeter island. So just trying to recreate what could have been there without being too much of an artist myself, you know, and trying to recreate something that I thought was there. I just tried to blend what was what was left, use the Getty painting, and try to make it flow together, basically. Speaking of, of other Danai paintings, how did you use digital overlays of, of related pictures to inform your work here? For the treatment, it wasn't really that essential. It was more of a working methods kind of an exploration to see how did he actually reuse some of these models in his various paintings. So it was pretty clear that when we overlaid the Getty painting on our painting, that they are very, very close in in size, the, the figure. I think the foot is a little bit longer, I think, in the Getty. I can't remember right off the top of my head right now. But we did digital overlays of these things to really understand the relationship between two related paintings. So if they were maybe the same size, was the head tilted a little bit this way or that way? So subtle shifts and then bigger shifts, including sizes. There's paintings that are maybe one quarter size of another version. So probably using some kind of tracings or grids or something, he, he would replicate these various compositions, particularly the models that he used, probably drew from life and then used tracings to overlay and then replicated that figure on another canvas. And interestingly enough, this was first discussed by Keith Christensen in the 2000 exhibition at the Met, and he actually came to Cleveland with the tracing of the now Getty painting. At that point, it was privately owned. We took the painting down, laid it on, on the museum floor, of course, on pads, and then overlaid the mylar tracing from the other painting, and it was just clear that it was the same figure, slight shifts probably from when the tracing was put from one to the other, and maybe it just shifted a little bit just because it's a, it's a big drawing, and maybe even in, done in parts and pieces. 
I saw the the recently conserved picture in Cleveland a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that struck me about it, and I you know seen the picture before, of course, and one of the things that struck me about it is I don't really remember having spent any visual time or energy on the angel before, and boy, this time I sure did. I, I know with Dan I paintings we we tend to talk about the obvious, <laughs> but th there was a lot that it looks like you did to the angel too. What what about that part of the painting did you particularly notice? Well, in the, the wings of, it's actually Cupid there. Yes, I'm sorry, Cupid. <laughs> that's, that's okay. In the wings of Cupid, there was, one of the wings was pretty much virtually obliterated. So there were like just little traces of what the outline or silhouette would be. It was the background wing. So that was really, that was very, very difficult to reconstruct. The figure was in pretty good condition, but in the flesh tones of both Cupid and Danai, there were lots of cracks, and they were dark because the underlying ground layer is dark. And without trying to in-paint every single crack, which is impossible, and you want the painting to look like it has some age to it, going going in and just dotting out the most disruptive dark cracks in areas, especially in transition from light to dark, really can do a lot to bring back the modeling that Orazio had intended. So I did quite a bit of that in, in the uh, figure of Cupid. And Cupid's wing, the, the foreground wing, is alive again. The texture between the feathers and the, and the downy, downiness of the top of the wing you can now differentiate between them in a way that maybe you, you couldn't as cleanly before. And also the visual rhyme between the wing and the golden bed sheet on Danai's bed came to life in a way I did not remember it from before. Right. And I think one of the most interesting things, as you said, in looking at these wonderful paintings by Orazio and Artemisia is you can easily get caught up in like the drama and the main figures. But if you take the time to like look at the the fringe of the golden fringe of the curtain in the background the screen curtain let me let me let me jump in for a quick second that that golden fringe the part of the golden fringe between the between cupid and and the female figure is is loud and bright and light and in in full force of light yes it's it's absolutely gorgeous and we we were able to do some pigment analysis, and he did use some lead tin yellow type 2 up there. And, and also, in, interestingly enough, in some of the shadows of Denai, we saw, saw a little bit of lead tin yellow. But the green, unfortunately, of the curtain in both the, the Getty version and ours has deteriorated. It's a copper-containing pigment, and the copper just changes over time and darkens. So the folds aren't quite as visible as they were, although they're more visible now that the painting is cleaned. But definitely the white sheet, the folds of the white sheet, which were just sort of dumbed down by this yellowed varnish before, just the, the shadows and the contours, they all just came brilliantly back to life. And, and that wasn't me. That's really the way it's painted. I can't wait to come see it again. <laughs> Marcia Steele, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.